Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the second episode of Work Green, Earn Green, brought to you by Working Nation. I'm your host, Jay Tipton. For those of you who tuned into the premiere episode, welcome back. And for those of you who didn't get a chance to listen yet, make sure to check it out. With the help of policy experts, hiring managers, market analysts, and journalists, we broke down the numerous different ways to define green jobs. I hope that for some of you, the conversations from last episode got your wheels turning a little bit about green jobs. Maybe you came to the conclusion that your job is green, or perhaps that it has the potential to be green. Well, from where I'm sitting here in Poland, the idea of green jobs sparks some great dialogue. As some of you already know, I'm here as an environmental protection scholar, and I'm lucky to be part of a program that has students from all over the world, Nigeria, Russia, Azerbaijan, Poland, of course, and a few more. Our group is taught by some very smart and passionate professors. I shared the first episode with my classmates and teachers, and to be honest, I wasn't sure what to expect, but the responses were awesome. It got all of us thinking, and it led to some interesting conversations and debates about what green jobs are like back in each of our own countries. As you could have guessed, we all agreed on the importance, but we also realized the potentials and challenges are different in each country. That is a great place to zoom back in on the U.S., because just like the difference between green job opportunities in, say, Nigeria versus Poland, the same is true for each different U.S. state. I'm going to explore each state to discover not only which green jobs are out there for the taking now, but also which green jobs are on the horizon. And so the journey around the country begins. I'm starting the adventure in a place that I think seems pretty fitting to kick us off, the birthplace of the United States, Pennsylvania. For those of you who slept through history class, it was in Philadelphia where the founding fathers met to debate, compose, and sign the documents that would become the blueprints of the American government. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philly's Independence Hall, and 11 years later, the Constitution was signed in the same building. Today, Pennsylvania is home to nearly 13 million people, and Philadelphia ranks as the fifth largest city in the U.S. I've traveled around most of the U.S., and I would wager that you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere with as much state pride as Pennsylvania. I remember the first time I visited Pittsburgh. I was blown away by the magnificence of the bridges that surround and link the city. Their size and structure were impressive. How can Pennsylvanians not be proud? Well, they are. And in fact, that pride is so tied to their history and cultural identity that one of the state's major sports teams is called the Steelers. But outside of forging the steel that helped build America, Pennsylvania has also been at the forefront of every energy revolution in the world. That is just one of the reasons I wanted to start the journey in Pennsylvania. I'm curious to see how local residents and workers are handling the transition to clean energy, especially because the state is so deeply linked to fossil fuels. Pennsylvania has been a state of innovation in the energy sector throughout its history. And that history, I think, 
positions the state and the people of the state to ride the wave of the next energy transition. That was Tom Foley. He's the deputy policy director of the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry. Lucky for us, Tom is also a historian who has conducted extensive research on the origins of the state's oil and coal industries and how the rise of those industries shaped the state's politics and ecology. Firewood was the predominant fuel source in the late 18th and early 19th century. So coal meant, you know, people survived, people stayed warm, and forests weren't decimated. Now, today, we know a little bit more (laughs) about the, you know, the long-term effects of burning fossil fuels. So I guess 100 years ago, some might have considered coal mining a green job since it was saving the forests. Yet even then, the transition from firewood to coal led to major shifts in the workforce. You know, as coal displaced firewood in cities, the carters and the woodcutters had to find new occupations. The whalers who sailed all over the world to hunt sperm whale to derive whale oil for lamps. They were displaced in part by the development of the petroleum industry. As far back as historians can tell, the nature of work has changed as new resources, infrastructure, transportation, and technology have grown. And this shift in our working lives inevitably impacted our sense of identity. In America, our culture and our identities are so tied to our work. And You know, to ask someone to shift industries or to shift occupations sometimes requires them, you know, it's asking them to rethink who they are. Which brings me to another proud Pennsylvanian, Tim Sippy. He's been working as a welder and bridge carpenter for more than 20 years. Well, Tim, it's nice to to meet you via the Internet. Yeah, yeah, nice to meet you, too. Born and raised just outside of Pittsburgh, Tim remembers having a typical childhood in the suburbs and some hazy memories of the big city. Once a year during Christmas, my mom would take me and my brother on a streetcar into the city. As you got closer to the city with the steel mills and everything, there was always like a haze in the air, like a gray haze. Even on sunny days, it always looked foggy in the city. Like many of us, Tim's family history, particularly his father's role as a steel mill worker, had a strong influence on the line of work he would eventually go into. My dad always, he taught me how to weld from an early age. While I was in school, I went and got cert- to be a certified welder. I started looking into the different trade unions, and I interviewed for U.S. Steel the same day I interviewed at the Carpenters Union. And I came home and I talked to my dad, and he said, you know, there's only two mills left in Pittsburgh right now. And... uh He said, so maybe the bridge carpenter might be a little better job security than the mill. That foresight from Tim's father not only helped him establish a long-standing career, but also broke a long chain of family members who worked in the steel mills. My grandfather's worked in the other steel mills that were across the river and down the river from where my dad worked. When you're walking around on an old mill site, the one thing that always, you know, you, you think about is how many men and women have worked here and came to work that day and and the next day like their first child was born or they got married or they you know what i mean and and at the same time how many people lost their lives there and how many people had sorrow you know it's kind of like a weird things like you're walking on like sacred ground when you walk on an old mill site like that undoubtedly these old buildings capture a feeling of family pride 
So when given the opportunity to modernize and retrofit the same mill that his father worked at, how did Tim respond? I was just wrapping up on a couple of jobs and my business agent said, hey, this one might be a good one for you. Um, so I went and I talked to a, a man, his name was Mike Carnahan. He worked for Scalo Solar. That's who had the contract to put the panels on there. I talked with him and, you know, we hit it off. I had a couple of interviews and so then he hired me on. And I, I actually started, I, I started as like a foreman superintendent for the job. And that job? one of the largest rooftop solar installations in the country. Mill 19 at Hazelwood Green in Pittsburgh is a 90,000 square foot structure that uses the frame of the former Jones and Laughlin Steel Company. In the 21 years that I've been in the Carpenters Union, that was probably the best project I've ever been on. We put 5,000 solar panels on top of the old mill building. And, you know, it... My dad worked there, so it was kind of nostalgic for me to be there because I was like walking on the same ground that he walked on, you know. Is this the first or was that the first time that you had done solar panel installation? It is. It is. Yeah. But at least I got to like see the gist of how they mounted to the roof and how they wired up and everything. But the problem with the panels is they were so light. We can only lift panels from no wind until about 12 miles an hour. They were just, they were so light, you could barely control them. Sometimes we started lifting panels in the dark just because I knew the wind was coming at noon. You could set your watch by it. Right after lunch, we had an anemometer on top of the crane and it would tell us what the wind speed was and we would have to shut it down. So that's when we would, instead of lifting panels, would stock all our clips for the next day. Like we worked out a really good system. It worked well. Scalo Solar was hoping that we would get five panel gangs up a day. That's what their projected goal was. Uh, closer to the middle of the building, towards the end, we were setting 27 gangs a day. Whoa. Did he just say he installed more than five times the number of panels he was expected to? And what did Tim get as an unexpected reward for completing the job? A super clear view of Pittsburgh from atop the same building his father worked at. I think he would be very proud of that. I wish I could have taken him up on top of that building because he would have loved that. Because like I said, when we were younger, the city always had like a gray haze to it. It was always gray. Mm -hmm. And now it's, you ought to see the animal. I mean, when we were down there, the amount of deer, the geese, uh, I mean, all the wildlife we seen while we were building that. Cause, I mean, we were up on top of the building. We could see for miles, you know, but there's a lot of wildlife down in the city. It sounds like breaking from family tradition certainly had its perks. So when it comes to Tim's son. The big joke is my dad worked there at the steel mill. I worked there putting solar panels up. He's going to work there as a robotics engineer. So would you want to do a similar project like that in the future if it came your way? Oh, in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. I, would, I wouldn't even think twice. I'd definitely do it in a heartbeat, yeah. Tim was quick to embrace the opportunity for a green job, and he would gladly do it again. So quick fact. Back in 2004, Pittsburgh was named the greenest city in America by the Green Building Alliance. And just last year, Governor Tom Wolf announced the Pennsylvania Climate Action Plan, which called for statewide action on climate change by all sectors. So soon, there should be more chances heading Tim's way as Pittsburgh continues its transition from steel city to green city. Up next, we'll hear how manufacturers in central Pennsylvania are finding meaning and purpose 
reimagining a common material that you would never associate with the word green. The way we work and the skills we need to do our jobs are changing fast. What do you need to know to keep up? And how do we as a society ensure everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed in today's workforce? I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Join me each week on the Work in Progress podcast as I go one-on-one with the innovators and decision makers who are helping us navigate our way through these challenges. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard from Tom Foley at the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry. And we also met Tim Sippy, a bridge builder who showed us it's possible to make a smooth transition from a traditional job into a green job, sometimes without even needing to retrain or go back to school. Now, I want to leave the bright lights of the city behind and head into central Pennsylvania. Bloomsburg is not a big place. It's, it's a small community. It's very, very agricultural and really green. And there are these little pockets of manufacturing sprinkled throughout, which are like the last little remnants from, you know, the turn of the century. That was Ron Court. He's the president and COO of Sekisui Kydex, a thermoplastics manufacturing company in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. Now, wait a second. Plastics? I know what you're thinking. How could plastic be considered green when it creates so many environmental problems. Trust me, I thought the exact same thing, but I wanted to hear Ron out. You know, when people hear plastics, the first thing they think of is oil, and they think of uh, plastics in the ocean. They think about single-use plastics, consumer plastics, plastics packaging, the things that, um, you know, plastic bags, that, that's, that's a whole different side of the polymer industry. And the side that we are on is what are called engineered thermoplastics. And these are materials which are actually designed to be recycled, and they're high-value materials. Okay, okay. I had never really thought of plastics like that before. He isn't wrong that the image in my head of plastic is a grocery bag floating in the ocean. The idea of recyclable plastic sounds much more green especially when you consider that their products are being used to retrofit public transportation to be lighter so they produce less carbon emissions. So, when Ron took on this role, his first initiative had less to do with the materials on the line and more to do with the people working the line. And the first thing I did was spend six months on the production floors day and night and just have conversations with people on the floor. And what I heard was a desire to have some sort of like purpose. A desire to have some sort of purpose. That's another major theme we heard about last episode. Workers are really beginning to care about more than just their paycheck. They want to find purpose in their work as well. Fast forward to today, and the company now has two plants in Pennsylvania. That means more jobs. But who is filling those roles. Our workforce is young. I mean, I've got I've got Gen Zs coming in by the by the boatload right now and the first thing they want to know is what are we doing? Why do we do it? That wanting purpose in a job part I mentioned earlier, Ron said his younger workers really connect with that as a motivating factor. It's a generational change because 
I can change equipment really quickly. I can change ERP or software. I can change that really quickly. But to change people, to help them believe what they're doing makes a difference and to show them that their contributions aren't just to line the pockets of the people who own the business, I have to build trust. So for us, it's been a 10-year journey of showing some loyalty to the people that come in every day. We show those people loyalty in terms of like, this is our plan, this is our 20-year vision for this company, this is our 10-year vision for this company, this is where you fit in, this is the contribution that you make, here's the impact, right? Um, I need to be able to come back and say, hey, you know what, in the raw materials that we put into a Boeing 777 over the course of two years, the CO2 savings for that is equivalent to 52,000, planting 52,000 trees. I need to connect. So what you're doing on that factory floor isn't just making profit, it's making purpose. And that's a solid distinction between those undergoing a job transition at the mid-career level and those trying to land entry-level jobs. Those of us trying to break in are driven by curiosity and determination, two characteristics that Ron tries to compensate his employees for. These Gen Zs have allowed us to kind of build this flexible workforce where they get to like really try on new things. And then often they move into things like R&D or they move back into, uh, they move into quality or technical services. And, and so, you know, we've got, for example, the continuing education, you know, we'll, we'll give any employee up to $10,000, reimburse up to $10,000 a year to go back to school to, to, to expand these skill sets. Because what we find is, you know, they come in for the J-O-B and, you know, they like the job and then they start to feel some purpose around it. And then I need to turn that job into a career. 10,000 bones. Are you serious? Ron, man, are you hiring? That's a pretty sweet deal. Investing in employees is one way to build a dedicated team, which Ron believes helps get them on board for the company goals. And just like how plastic can evolve into recyclable thermoplastics, Ron is trying to help change those green jobs into green careers. Stay tuned, more after a word from Working Nation. If you're curious about green jobs, good news. Working Nation has even more content for you to dive into. Alicia Clark here, producer of Work Green, Earn Green, and I'm excited to announce that a new edition of our video series, I Want That Job, premieres on January 28th. These new episodes will feature careers that are in high demand and help save the environment, like software engineers, hydrologists, and some others that may surprise you. So don't miss out. Subscribe now to the Working Nation YouTube channel and follow the hashtag GreenJobsNow. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard from Ron Court about how his company is rebranding manufacturing in a way to appeal to America's next generation of workers. As he spoke about appealing to Gen Z's sense of purpose, I couldn't help but wonder how entry-level workers are obtaining the skills needed to jump into a green job. Tim's carpentry experience served him well during his transition to solar panel installation. But what about those who are just entering the workforce? How can they compete for jobs? That question led me to Walt Yakubowski, the Director of Training at the Energy Coordinating Agency, or ECA. 
Hot on the heels of the 2008 financial crisis, the Knight Foundation renovated a training center in an effort to match the increased demand for energy-efficient careers. The Knight Training Program launched in 2009, and 13 years later, it has graduated 5,800 students who now possess green skills. It's a real challenge to be able to educate the younger folks, obviously, and also the adults as to what this is all about. So our students, they are becoming very aware of the environmental issues, climate change, et cetera. And once they are taking these classes, they bring that home to their parents. So they're, they're kind of like becoming ambassadors as well as getting trained for a career. The training center offers several programs that provide opportunities for people to make a decent wage working green jobs. The first is called Green Renovation and Retrofit which teaches students the skills needed to gut and convert older buildings into more energy efficient ones. The second is solar panel installation. Then there's an HVAC program. And finally, environmental remediation, which deals with the disposal of hazardous materials. All these jobs would fall into the green job definition structure that we learned about from Matt Siegelman at MC Burning Glass last episode. You know, the core green and green enabled jobs. And these programs only require a high school diploma or GED to enroll. So how much green can graduates expect to earn? The green renovation retrofit is around the $35,000 range. Solar PV installer between 40 and 45,000. If your HVAC maintenance you're in that forty dollars to $45,000 range. If you take phase two of the HVAC program, which is the troubleshooting and installation of commercial equipment, you're up to about $65,000 a year. And after uh, maybe three or four years of experience, if you take the third phase, that's six-figure income. That's great money for a path that doesn't require an expensive college education. Hashtag work green, earn green. And although a certification or training program may seem to lead into one career pathway, the skills are broad enough to transfer to other fields as well. For instance, graduates of the environmental remediation program, they go to work at hospitals because of the bio waste, biohazardous waste at hospitals. And you have to be able to have the skills and the knowledge as to what to be able to do with that waste and not let it contaminate the building, the rest of the hospital, et cetera. And once again, we see how green skills can apply to many different career paths. So what kind of students typically apply to the program? Our specific audience is educationally and economically disadvantaged individuals, as well as returning citizens. What we attempt to do is to give them that opportunity where they can make a family-sustaining wage and also be put onto a career path where once they're in the industry, they can advance in, uh, in their careers. And as people transition, so too can their communities. Learning new skills creates new opportunities for many Philadelphia neighborhoods to take part in the green economy. To better speak on this subject, I spoke with Celine Chapman, Philadelphia's Chief Resilience Officer. Salim is tasked with overseeing the city's readiness for climate change. In terms of my day-to-day -day responsibilities, 
is really taking a 30,000 foot view of city government and really looking at how we can leverage opportunities that already exist to really confront problems in a really sort of holistic and comprehensive way that more better aligns with how our residents experience them. But his path into environmental justice at the government level wasn't one he considered growing up. I'm a Philadelphia native and yeah, my path to sort of environmentalism is complex and nonlinear, partially because I didn't see a place for myself in this movement. I grew up in a disadvantaged background. And so, you know, the social and economic challenges that came along with that were certainly the predominant issues in my life. And so I didn't view myself as having the privilege or the luxury to engage on environmental issues. As I got exposed to the language and theories and concepts of environmental justice, I very much saw that not only was there a place for me in this work, but this work was sort of deeply interwoven with the issues that ultimately had motivated me and promoted my activism long through my childhood. Whether people find purpose in saving the planet or helping out their local community, the green economy provides a way for them to work toward their goals. Pennsylvania is really interesting in that it's incredibly geographically diverse. So you have on the eastern side of the state exists within the context of the eastern seaboard. And then you have the western side of the state, which you know is very connected to the Midwest Rust Belt identity. And that's a complex interaction, right? And so what we have to do is find places where we can understand that kind of shared experience that motivates us perhaps in different ways. So when I think of someone who might have a deep and intimate connection with the fossil fuel industry, it very much relates back to me having to find a space and environmental movement that connected with me. I think we have to acknowledge that part of their identity, honor it, but also give them a pathway to imagine something different and better that doesn't totally change how they see themselves. Despite the differences in communities across the state, one thing is certain. Transitioning is not just inevitable, but also a part of their shared statewide history. One of the challenges, you know, in shifting from one industry to another, from working in a coal mine to working on a wind turbine, the cultural bonds are, are so tight. I don't think that's insurmountable. Americans are constantly pulled between the future and the past. And I think when the future starts to win out, that frees us a little bit to reimagine a lot, you know, to reimagine ourselves, to reimagine our work, to reimagine the systems that we hold up and that we operate within. The country's been able to do amazing things when it comes together and, and under a shared vision. So... Last question. Uh, do you think the Pittsburgh Steelers will ever change their name to the Pittsburgh Wind Turbines? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Okay, so maybe the Steelers will never become the Wind Turbines, but I do agree with Tom about the opportunity to come together under a shared vision to do amazing things. 
And from what I learned, Pennsylvania is a great example of that. From the American Revolution to the Green Revolution, these proud Pennsylvanians have long embraced their history. And now they have a chance to literally build upon it. Be sure to join me again on the next episode as I travel into the deep south in the bayous of Louisiana. Thanks for listening to this second episode. I hope you learned something new and had some fun. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can show support by following it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts where you can leave me comments. I appreciate the feedback and please ask questions. I will use them in future episodes. Finally, be sure to visit workingnation.com to find additional content on green jobs. Later days. This podcast is produced by Alicia Clark and executive produced by Melissa Panzer, Joan Lynch, and Art Bilger. It's edited and sound mixed by Linz Florin. Music is by Avocado Junkie. This podcast is made possible by the Walton Family Foundation.